previously on Hacker Valley Blue. Today, we're switching gears and introducing the first ever season of Hacker Valley Red. We talk about what red actually can do for organizations and what the, the path of somebody in the red side looks like. What are the skills that you have in your tool belt that helps you get second place in that, that competition? The other thing that I feel like has really helped me is just knowing how to be an improviser. I used to perform improv comedy. I had to unfortunately quit because I was spending all my time hacking, which it's okay, because I still get to do improv in my hacking. I used to perform that, and that skill set has helped me immeasurably. I would say the only difference between what I do in a red teaming engagement and what a criminal does is the fact that you're paying me to do it. This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. This episode is sponsored by Risk IQ. There are so many researchers and analysts that I know and trust that use Risk IQ's platform. Not to mention I've personally leaned on Risk IQ while leading threat intelligence capabilities in my career. Risk IQ has been crawling and absorbing the internet so practitioners can leverage that data during investigations and research. If you want to learn more about Risk IQ, visit riskiq.com or jump down into the information below in the show notes. In this episode of Hacker Valley Red, we brought on Alex Rice. He's the CTO and co-founder of HackerOne. And in this episode, we talk about the beginnings of the researcher community. We talk a little bit about bug bounty, and we talk about the term hacker and what that means today. And without further ado, let's jump right to this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again here in the studio repping Hacker Valley Red. And today we've brought in an extremely special guest. We have Alex Rice. He is the CTO and also co-founder of HackerOne. Alex, it's a true pleasure and honor to have you on the show and welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Alex, we are super excited for this episode. We had a great conversation just last week about all the things about the evolution of the researcher community and things like that. For the folks that don't know who you are just yet, love to hear a little bit of your background and what you're doing today. Yeah, let's do the, the, the fast version of it. Yeah, so I started off as a developer that kind of naively thought security would be uh, something I could do better than the security teams that I was working with. So dived into it uh, kind of headfirst about 20 years ago. And yeah, still, still here. So I've done stints as a programmer for a while, a security researcher over at, at Forcepoint and, and WebSense. Went on to start the product security team at, at Facebook. I ran product security for a while before uh, kicking off HackerOne to uh, bring the, the hacker community front and center of our industry. Love that. And I think there's always a bit behind the story of what initially led you to be interested in developing and, and what was the shift like to start to approach cybersecurity? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So what, one of the things that always bugged me about the security industry and particularly trying to do security engineering was the lack of feedback loops that we have on the on the security side. The development teams everywhere are just obsessed with quick feedback loops, continuous improvement on, on processes. And when I shifted over to security, I was really just missing all of that. So I kind of spent the number of years really hungry for feedback loops from 
static analysis to pen test to everything else. And then one of the surprising feedback loops that we stumbled upon almost by by accident was I had uh, I'd been on the receiving end of a few cease and desist letters at WebSense Security Labs, and so worked with Marsha Hoffman at the EFF to put in place a disclosure policy when I when I first got to Facebook. And it really quickly became one of those one of those feedback loops that was really important for finding out what we missed, what we screwed up, what we weren't thinking about. Kind of slowly slowly evolved until it became a, a bounty program, and quickly became the feedback loop that we depended upon for figuring out where we should be investing, what we need to fix, and it was really eye opening. Yeah. So if you could take us through the origins of Hacker One, would love to hear a bit of that origin story and what was the part that you played. Yeah, so it probably worth talking about it through the through the lens of Facebook's product security team because we started with, like I said, the, the disclosure program where we gave folks high fives and t-shirts and, and thanks pages, and it was it was producing quite a few vulnerabilities th- throughout the year. Bounty programs weren't a new thing at that point in time. The web browsers had done them for a long time. We'd been talking with our colleagues over at Google about adding them to web properties. So in the span of a few months, Google and Facebook both pulled the trigger on on web bounty programs. Honestly, we were pretty overconfident slash naive. We launched it Friday night at a DEF CON and planning to go party right afterwards and do the normal DEF CON track. But the community took note and rose to the challenge. We had just over 300 validated vulnerabilities by Monday morning, one of the more wow. uh, eye-opening and humbling experiences of, of my career all, all at the same time. So we had a, an intense scramble. When the dust settled, it really became one of the most important feedback loops going into all the security investments that we did from a security engineering perspective at Facebook. just got to the point where I could not imagine running a engineering program without that hacker perspective, that hacker feedback loop continually coming into our roadmaps. And so launched HackerOne to, to help other folks down that same path with brilliant gems like uh, don't launch on a Friday night before DEF CON. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be uh, very eye-opening, surprising, and maybe even somewhat frustrating. Back during that time, was the payment of Bug Bounty very popular what was that like trying to pay these over 300 vulnerabilities or points of weaknesses found? I was in a bit of a, a privileged position at Facebook in that we had a pretty pretty great support structure and program management team to get things like this done. So even though that we hadn't done the proper planning and, and preparation for it, we were able to scramble and get them out. It's evolved quite a bit. It wasn't the ideal hacker experience at the time. We experimented with a number of different things from PayPal to proper procurement. We even had a custom Visa cards made at one point so that we could reload the cards. We thought that might be the quickest way to get people paid, which worked great until people would started paying their, their mortgages and that's off of bounties and that's not uh, prepaid Visa cards. Not a lot of a lot of mortgage companies take those. So it evolved quite a bit over time, but it was just a lot of heavy lifting in the in the early days. There wasn't really any alternatives. Like the HackerOne payment infrastructure today is really optimized around a seamless researcher experience, get people paid, get them paid fast, get them paid consistently in whatever currency or, or uh, format they, they'd like to see. But surprisingly, was no off-the-shelf thing to do that back in the dark ages. would love to hear a little bit about the decision to actually include the word hacker in your your name. 
Obviously, you're in outstanding company with the Hacker Valley Studio podcast, but would love to hear a little bit about your thoughts of including the word hacker in the name of the company. One of the things that we were dealing with first and foremost was the, what's the right way to to really talk about this? Because it really hits close to my heart the way that the community gets misrepresented across the board. We try to create all these friendly names to normalize and get past the biases that we have with breaking software, whether that's security researcher or tester or pen tester or ethical hacker. And all of them beat around the bush and they try to convert this skill of hacking into something that is more palatable to people. And we just decided that's it's a disservice to the skill set, to the mentality, to the creativity, to the persistence of people that have that particular drive. And we thought that it was important that everyone who was going down this path of working with the with the hacker community just embrace that you're working with hackers. And that's what you want to be doing. You can't possibly get as secure as you want to be without the perspective of hackers, without working alongside hackers. And the more you water down the name and water down the concept, the more you just detract from the value that you get out of it. We chose to to go all in on the name. It's an uphill battle with the different biases and preconceptions people have when you say hacker. And whether it's President Trump talking about the 400 pound person in the basement or the, or the movie theaters, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the black hoodies in, in the basement. And in reality, it's a phenomenally diverse community with tons of people from, from different backgrounds and, and contexts. And that's what makes it powerful. We were swimming against those stereotypes, but we thought it was a core part of trying to correct them. It's actually going better than, than we would have hoped. We certainly have had folks that chose not to run these programs because they're afraid of hackers. And, and honestly, they're, they're not a good fit for this today. Like if you're not willing to take input from the scariest thing that your limited imagination can, can come <laughs> up with, it's just probably not a good fit. The fun parts have been almost every marketing executive that we've hired at, uh, at HackerOne, most of the VC firms that we've talked to here in Silicon Valley, one of the inevitable questions that we always get is, have you thought about changing the name to something that'd be more uh, more friendly to the enterprise. And I don't buy it. I think having that hacker mentality is a core part of what makes the whole model work. Absolutely. And one of the ambitions that you were talking to us about a few days ago, and also right when we started recording, was getting rid of the cease and desist. It sounds like with some companies that are still afraid of hackers, they might still go down that route. How do you think that HackerOne and other bug bounty programs have changed the cease and desist process that hackers used to face? Like, are there a lot less hackers being sued now? If you do a bug bounty program, do you still have the option to get sued by companies? How does it work in the background? Oh, man. It depends on which day you catch me on. On on one hand, I think (laughs) we've made phenomenal progress from where we were in the the mid-2000s, right? It It was the norm that you were met with cease and desist and your job was threatened. You have people like Mike Lynn pulling talks from Black Hat. And if you haven't seen this video, Google Cisco Black Hat page tearing where you had people going a Ford Model T construction line of manuals coming through with pages being ripped out, trying to censor disclosures from the conference, uh, folks losing their jobs, losing their livelihood. 
And it's just, uh, there's a lot less of that now, but I don't feel like we've removed that risk entirely. And I'm, I'm constantly nervous that a few missteps or overzealous organizations could send us flying back to that area. So I'm cognizant of the, the progress that we made and still humbled by the amount of work that we, that we still need to do. We spent a lot of time trying to educate legal teams on creating proactive safe harbor clauses in their lines, not put in their, in their policies, not putting constraints on it, not having anything that could lead a hacker to trouble, whether intentional or unintentional. It continues to be an uphill battle. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that as much progress as we make from the private industry perspective... We're never really going to solve this until we fundamentally made these activities legal. There's no perfect safe harbor clause that we can put into these policies. There's nothing that will truly make this safe until we have the criminal justice system catch up and legislators catch up. When I think about where we still have the most work to occur, everything else that we do is kind of working around these draconian CFAA laws that lead us to the scenario that we're at. One thing that kind of comes to my mind is the evolution of that research community, but even more specifically, the bug bounty community. I know a few people that are either doing bug bounties right now or they're interested in getting into it. There's a a serious community there. Did you ever foresee that actually being the case? No. And it really warms my heart to think about it that way, because from our perspective, when we were launching these programs, the security community was always there. The hacker community was always there. There was just an adversarial relationship with most organizations and no real incentive to participate and to do the right thing. So you saw just the tip of the iceberg of the people that are capable of providing this value to society, really sticking their neck out there, risking cease and desist, doing work for free, risking job loss or exposure, being vilified in in press articles. But the community was absolutely there. We were launching these programs at the beginning. It wasn't about, oh man, I wonder how many more people we can get into this work. It was really all about this work is already happening. It's just unjust and unequal. And we should be properly rewarding people for the value they're contributing to society. It wasn't top of mind at the beginning. It was just the right thing to do for a community that has existed since the beginning of the internet. And more recently, it started to turn into something that we spent a lot of time thinking about. How do we make it more inclusive? How do we grow not just the the community, but the pool of people that have this skill set and have the ability to get access to this type of economic opportunity? We have all these promising anecdotes of 15-year-old kids becoming millionaires before they can before they can drink and yeah. and they're great success stories but it's still a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of attack surface we still have to secure the amount of engineering teams that are still need this hacker perspective and this hacker mentality and so i think we've got to grow the community broader than just bug bounty it is all about how do we normalize hacking how do we normalize breaking how do we make asking what are all the ways this technology is going to fail us a normal part of building any piece of technology that we're going to rely upon for security or privacy. That's a beautiful sentiment. 
One thing that I kind of see in the community, especially when it comes to, to bug bounty and the things that you guys are doing at HackerOne, is this almost like gamification of, of security and hacking. And what's awesome is I see parallels between what you're doing and some of the other bug bounty providers are doing is you're almost presenting this esports dynamic to actually doing the, the bug bounties. Do you see those parallels as well? And was that intentional? It is not quite as straightforward as we as often uh, viewed as. We recognize that there are a lot of different motivations that drive people to do this type of work. We want to make all of them as, as rewarding as possible. A great piece of literature on this is a, a framework that I and the Calvary put out around the five motivations of, of security researchers. And through a bunch of surveys and conversations, they really distilled it down to security researchers and the hacker community more broadly do what they do because they're trying to protect software. They, they really care about it. They're interested in the, in the puzzle, the creative challenge. They care about pride or prestige or attempting to protest something because they're like making a political point or they're looking to profit from it. And the bug bounty, when it started, was really about checking that last box of, of enabling people to profit from this. But vulnerability disclosure more broadly touches on all of these motivations. It helps the hacker community protect technology and its end users. It fulfills their internal desire to solve puzzles, hopefully gives them pride and prestige. They're able to profit on it. And if they're trying to make a point, it supports that also. And so the areas that we invest in are all about understanding that everyone has different drivers, has, has different motivations, and some folks are motivated in, in different ways than others. So there's no single silver bullet of like, oh yeah, this is the way that hackers are motivated. Just do this and they'd be motivated to continue doing good work. It's really about tapping into as many of those diverse motivations as we can to get as broad a, of a pool as possible, because it's fundamentally what makes this work. You want people with different perspectives, different mindsets, different motivations to to fuel that drive. I'm still stuck on the idea of 15-year-olds being millionaires through bug bounty programs. I know that we have some mutual friends like Santi. Are there other teenage millionaires out there that are doing bug bounty? And how do they go to their parents and raise their hand and say, I want to be a hacker, I can break things, and there's this cool Hacker One program? <laughs> it starts from a problem statement of that's not normal today. And so when you hear about the people that are doing it, they're really outliers in the process. And while it's certainly possible, there's a lot of challenges between that level of success and, and, and what we see. Santi is a great example of one of the challenges that he ran into is he hadn't talked to his parents about what he was doing. And he was pretty open around how he wasn't sure how supportive they were going to be because most parents are probably rightly pretty freaked out if their 15-year-old kid comes to them and says, hey, mom, right. I'm making <laughs> making good money hacking. They're like, what? So when mm -hmm. we first invited Santi to uh, one of our live hacking events in, in, in Las Vegas, we had multiple phone calls with executives at HackerOne with uh, Santi's mom to convince her that his son was not flying to Vegas to engage in all types of a sketchy <laughs> criminal activity. And well, that, well, that's a fun story in, in, in the bounty cut and Santi ended up pulling in over, over six figures just in that weekend. So I'm, I'm glad we got his mom on board. That dynamic at play there exists in forms 
small and large across a number of different spectrums. How many kids were not allowed to go to DEF CON or, or Blackhead early on because it was a, a hacker conference or right. when they said they wanted to spend some time doing this, they were discouraged by their parents, whether it's the cliche, no, you're going to be a doctor to protect people versus something more sinister where it's like they actually have a negative view of, of hacking. It's not viewed as a normal career yet today. It's not respected. It's not admired. It's always viewed as kind of a, a hobby or a passion or, or a side project. And I don't think we're going to see the dynamic change until we can really normalize, like I was talking about earlier, normalize the idea that you have to break things and it should be a respected, in-demand, highly compensated skill set in society. Let's talk about these outliers for a moment, the folks that are really on the cutting edge of, of hacking, to be honest. Are there any similarities between the personas? Are there any like major differences that stand out to you? What, what are those conversations like? Yeah. So th- there's a few different ways to slice the, the community. There's the folks that make large amounts of money, like kind of the, the eye-popping dollar figures on, on, on bounty programs. These are the folks that have chosen to do bounty programs full-time. And you could draw similarities between those folks. And it's generally, they have a higher risk tolerance. They're, they're comfortable with the swings. They like the flexibility of where they're working. And they have this very, almost, it's like every one of them has some specific area that they specialize in or, or, or go after. And so while each one of those specific things is, is a little bit different, the commonality across all of them is that there's always this area of specialization that really they've, they've come into their own on. But if you look at the bulk of the community by broad people who have made good money, but not doing this on a beach as, as their full-time job, mm-hmm. the vast majority of people participating in these communities and these programs use it to supplement their skills during their day jobs. So they're, they're software engineers or pen testers or, or security engineers that have a day-to-day grind that is where they provide most of their value back to society, but they leverage bounty programs as that creative outlet around, I've been I've been defending the same attack surface all day. Let me try attacking somebody else's, or I've been working with the same threat model that I have all day. Let me experiment with some other ones. And we see the two play off of each other constantly. Like the creativity that you get from attacking somebody else's system for a weekend adds a lot of value back to your day job and, and vice versa. During the time of this recording, we're still locked down, at least in a huge aspect of being involved and having COVID being around still. And a lot of conferences are being canceled. There's a lot of digital transformation going on. A lot of researchers, practitioners, they have the time to work from home. Are you seeing a huge shift in bug bounty programs and the amount of participation since COVID, what's that been like for you all? Since March, we've seen a sustained nearly 50% increase in, in volume across the board. We had one week, just two weeks ago, we paid $3.7 million in, in bounties to hackers on behalf of customers. And last year, we were lucky to have a $4 million in, in a month, right? So it's really, wow. it's really week? spiked. A lot of bugs fixed in that week, <laughs> but it has gone up quite a bit. And Part of that is uh, certainly driven by the pandemic and folks being a little bit more locked to a computer than they, than they would be otherwise. So it's been great for society, but I don't know if I'd pin it as sustainable just yet. Let's say I'm a hacker and I want to get out there and I want to do bug bounties. 
but I hate writing reports. Is there anything that that person could do to actually get paid without writing a great report? Is there, is there an intermediary, like a, a, almost like a translator for folks that don't write reports? (laughs) There's not, but I would say that one of the positive things about participating in these programs that really differs it from traditional testing or, or traditional assessment methods is that it's really all about impact. And a large part of the value that we provide at HackerOne is trying to translate that impact because you want to let hackers do what they do best, which is break things and and translate it to why why does this really matter? And so while in a traditional assessment, you might spend a lot more time trying to uh, describe issues or describe the risk to the business or present it in a format, those activities will cause you to be more successful in bounty programs, but they're not required for you to be successful in bounty programs. It's, it, is, it is really all about focusing on, on impact. I think the point of your question of how would you get started? What would you, could you get a sense of what these things look like? We have a, a feed on HackerOne called Hacktivity, which is just all the public disclosures that happen. It's when both the hacker and the company coordinate on a on a disclosure. And you can spend some time diving through the diversity of of write-ups that you see on on that front. And it's one of the best ways to get a sense of what does this really look like in, in practice. And you'll see some beautiful, multi-page, professional, well-written reports. And then you'll also see people making four or five figures for a few sentences of a write-up. And it really all comes down to what's the impact and, and can you demonstrate that impact? So I have a somewhat of a funny question, and you'll have to use your imagination and play <laughs> oh along a little bit. <laughs> I know it's um, coming up. So you've seen so many reports come in. You've seen all these types of hacks. You've seen the unhackable become hackable. From what you've learned, is there ever such a world to where we can produce an unhackable device or an application? And what would be the closest thing that that would look like? There's no, there's no one hackable. <laughs> I mean, just take that, take that off the table to, to, to start with. Perfect. But what's the, what's the closest that it looks like? There are areas of attack surface with, particularly within enterprises, that are near as close as you can get to having confidence that the ability to hack it is, and the cost to to hack it are completely out of whack with the reward for for hacking that particular asset or, or attack surface. And the only way you can get at a confidence interval that would be meaningful at all for that is to have it being subjected to continuous state sustained engagement over time, where you can start to reason about, all right, we see a, a critical vulnerability at about this increment, and it's increased this much from what we were observing a year ago. We know we have to offer incentives at, at this level, and we can be reasonably confident not at is it hackable or unhackable, but what level of effort would go into hacking this particular system or attack surface. And once you have that insight and that baseline, you can start to zero in on, on your threat models to a point where you're not going to label labeled as unhackable but you're not losing sleep over that target anymore. You have a very good sense of where your problems are, what it would take to compromise the device, and most importantly, your confidence in your ability to respond to a particular incident in that asset. Well said. I think this is a, maybe about a year ago, I did a talk, and during the talk, I talked about being in the adjacent possible. 
And what the adjacent possible is, is when researchers, maybe their PhDs in a given profession, they all come to the same conclusion around the same time, like without even connecting with each other. Uh, One thing that I think that's really well constructed about bug bounties is actually taking the really good focused hackers and looking at what the bad focused hackers are also doing at the same time. And what happens is that the good focus hackers, whenever they find that finding, they're probably finding it just moments before those bad hackers are actually finding it. And that's actually like, that's the value proposition for these types of programs and just hacking in general. Do you feel the same way about that? Or or do you look at things a little differently? I do. I think it's a little bit, there's hints of truth that we can pull at to help explain that phenomena. And we've dug into them a little bit in the past, whether it's somebody sharing a new technique or somebody having a conversation in an IRC channel or when reading a report and having an inspiration, like knowledge and inspiration tends to build upon itself. And it's hard to know what piece of information or what conversation will, will lead to that. So you get there by accelerating that cycle as much as you can. You want to share and disclose as much as you can, even if it seems inconsequential or or irrelevant or unexploitable or or meaningless, because the more we do that, the more you spark these periods of inspiration across broader groups of folks. And we see that happen both in in more abstract things, like when particular vulnerability classes or particular techniques become more widespread. And anytime you find one of those and you really trace it back to the origin of our breakthrough in that area, they're often pretty humble origins. Sometimes not. Sometimes it takes years of of sustained work to to make that breakthrough. And then you see this massive wave. But more often than not, it's a pretty innocuous or humble origin for that thing that caused someone to have a eureka moment on a new wave of compromise. I'm sure in some regards, HackerOne was a eureka moment for you, considering you didn't see the community that was going to be built and it took time. It didn't happen immediately. This is something that you nurtured and it came to fruition over time. What are some things that you're looking to in the future when it comes to bug bounty or technology as a whole? I have two parts to it. One is we're still laser focused on as much as it's grown, it's not yet the norm for folks creating the software that we rely upon to turn to the community to assess its security. There's still too many programs that really pay lip service to that or look at it. And I think we still got a long way to go on just establishing that as a norm across the industry. Like we're not buying your security claims until you have the public assess and collaborate those those claims. I hope we'll continue to make a, a lot of progress on on that front. Number two, the area that we've started to see with our more progressive customers is once you've made that that hump of, okay, I'm, I'm not perfect. I have vulnerabilities. I'm not going to be able to solve this myself. There's actually a, a lot of benefits to collaborating with the, with the hacker community on this. You start to see the walls that existed between them come down and other avenues for collaboration open up. And so while we think bounty programs are the, the thing that we hope everybody starts doing, or more specifically, we hope vulnerability disclosure programs are what everyone will, will open up to, just the ability to take that input. We've started, for those more progressive folks, we've started to find ways for hackers to 
get value beyond the big vulnerability, the vulnerability push. So we've structured pen test offerings around having hackers get more predictable income with structured methodical testing. So kind of a traditional checklist methodology. We've had customers leverage the community to do red teams where they incentivize hackers based on a specific assessment scenario-based outcome they'd like to see achieved. Like we'll reward you this amount if you can sneak in a malicious code commit and that's how we want to test our blue team this next quarter. We've had folks heavily involve hackers in the remediation and validation process from retest to suggesting code fixes. We hope the future is trending in that direction that we can get hackers a lot more involved in the security development lifecycle across the board, particularly left of production. So we've only known you for about two weeks at this point, but one thing that keeps popping up in my mind, a word It's passion, passion for researchers, passion for hackers, both their protections and their rights, and also the perception of hackers. What passions do you have outside of cybersecurity? What keeps you sane? What keeps you mellow? What are some of the things that you think other people can do to do the same? Oh, no. My passions outside of cybersecurity are to uh, be away from cybersecurity as much as I can. <laughs> when, I'm, when it's my weekends and, and my evenings, I try to get away from a computer. I, I live out as far as I, way as I can get from the downtown San Francisco Bay Area while still uh, being in commute distance to the Bay Area. My weekends are lots of digging in the dirt, chainsawing, hammering, very simple pursuits outside of cybersecurity. Oh, nice. Digging in the dirt. So that must be some gardening, some construction of your house, all types of things. We decided we wanted to expand our our garden. So I'm running a a 40-foot trench for irrigation out to uh, the second area to, to add a garden to when all the wildfires hit. So I've got a giant half-exposed trench that I need to to finish up as soon as the smoke clears. You know, one thing that I wanted to ask, with all of your insight and experience with HackerOne and also bug bounty programs, what's something that you would say to encourage those that are already doing bug bounty to keep going? Is there any area that you feel as though the practitioner should double down on? What are your thoughts on that? It's a great question. I would encourage anyone doing bug bounty to recognize that the strength in this practice lies in the diversity of of skill sets that we have, and to always walk that fine balance between specializing in a few areas versus branching out. And so if you're ever heading down the the bug bounty path and you find yourself stuck or or stagnant, just kind of pause for a second and, and, and recognize that the whole practice is fueled by creativity and persistence and diversity of thought. And so if you're stuck on bug bounty, if you've gone through a few tactical suggestions, like try other programs, try talking to other hackers, try different attack techniques, try something other than bounty. This is really about cybersecurity much more broadly than that. It's a very diverse field. There's a lot of different skill sets in it. And you will be better at participating in bounty programs the, the broader your skill set, the more interests you have, the, the more skills that you have. So we hope to see people leave and come back pretty regularly, not just uh, become myopic in their thinking about the right way to secure software. So right now, there's someone somewhere that's listening to this podcast and their defender 
and maybe they've been slighted in the past by a hacker. Maybe they got hacked themselves and they have this, this opinion of hackers. What would you say to them right now to get in line with bug bounties, get in line with the good hackers and get on the right side of things? Take a deep breath. Feedback is, is a gift in all forms. It never comes the way you want to receive it. And some of the worst incidents and breaches and annoying moments of, of my career have been some of the best learning opportunities of, of my career. I see similar trends across anyone who's been in the cybersecurity industry for, for too long is that feedback is something that we should all orient ourselves around. And when you start to do that, you stop being picky about how it comes and how how well-spoken it is or how polite it is or whether or not it came on a Friday or a Monday or however you get it. The important thing is, is that you got it. And we can try to make that more palatable and easier to consume and structured it and, and more controlled. And, and to a large extent, that's that's a huge part of what our business is at, at HackerOne is, is channeling feedback into very constructive manners for you. But at the end of the day, you should strive for that type of feedback and hope that it doesn't come in the form of a, of a breach. And I find that mentality to be a really refreshing mentality to, to approach. Once I fully embraced it, I, I just stopped being picky about how I, how I learned about the things I could have done better. That was absolutely beautiful. Alex, thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for hopping on the mics with us today. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and everything that HackerOne is up to, what are the best ways that people can do that? I got to plug Twitter and I have a hard time doing that given that we're coming up on, a, on an election season. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, Twitter's the best place to, to follow along. And then more importantly, if you want to follow the community, which is where I'd start from, hackerone.com slash activity. Check out a disclosure once a week and get a, get a real sense of what the community's been up to. I think you'll enjoy it. Awesome. Definitely check out those things. We will drop those in the show notes just so everyone has the links to follow along. And Alex, thank you so much. It's been great speaking and we'll see everyone next time. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care.